And now for something completely different. Um, the month is uh, pulmonary. We had a number of uh, M&Ms this morning that were fascinating. Uh, and this is the Emergency Medicine Conference. Uh, this next lecture has nothing to do with medicine or pneumonia uh, or pulmonary symptoms, but um, it's absolutely fascinating. I was interested in it, and I learned of a new development uh, in this story a couple of weeks ago. So because of that, I have to, uh, I just had to tell you about it because it's something that's interesting to me. So we're going to talk about the Plague of Athens. And this is a story that incorporates a lot of things that you've heard about with classical literature, a lot of things you've heard about in the history of medicine, going back to Hippocrates, uh, and maybe some stuff you haven't really heard about, and talks a little about infectious disease and about the way that um, uh, disease changed history. Our story begins on the plains of Marathon and the Peloponnesian Peninsula, about 26 miles northeast of, of uh, Athens. 26 miles, cute, no? So in 490 BC, Darius of Persia tries to invade Greece, uh, collects a massive army, uh, puts on a bunch of ships, sails it across the Aegean, lands at Marathon, where he is then defeated in a stunning upset by the, uh, by the uh, lesser-numbered uh, Greek soldiers. So excited, um, so, so the story goes, about the victory that uh, I'm going to screw up these names the whole talk because I am not good with classical names. Pheidippides uh, or Pheidippides um, runs from the battle site to Athens to tell the story, to, to tell him of the victory. And the story goes that as soon as he got there, he died. He dropped dead. So how better to commemorate a run that ended in somebody dying, but with a run? <laughs> and in 1896, at the first modern Olympic Games in Athens, they commemorate the run by going from the, the battle site of Marathon, 26 miles to Athens. In fact, what they did was they, they chose 40 kilometers. They laid out, they measured out a distance of 40 kilometers. They chose a route along that uh, roads that went 40 kilometers, and that became the marathon distance, at least for them. The next Olympic Games, they had a different distance, and the next one after that, they had a different distance. And in 1908, in London, they had a yet another, di another di distance. In 1908, they wanted the race to start at Windsor Castle. And he thought it would be really cool if they started at Windsor Castle and they finished in the stadium, in the Olympic Stadium. And to make it more exciting, when they get in the Olympic Stadium, they were going to have the runners do one more lap. Yeah, because they hadn't run really enough yet. So um, That way people could see the, the, all the runners for one full lap. And they would finish right in front of the Royal, Royal Box. To do this, they had to add some distance on to the, to the race. And the race became 26.2 miles. 42.195 kilometers, and in 1921, the organizing body settled that as the official distance. So that's why we all run 26.22 miles today for the marathon, even though the distance of the original course was, was 40 kilometers or 26 miles. 
So Darius was rebuffed at Marathon. He retreats back into Persia, starts to rebuild his army. There's a revolt in Egypt. He goes to put down the revolt in Egypt, part of the Persian holdings, and he eventually dies. Old age, sickness, whatever. His son is Xerxes. Xerxes decides he has to avenge his father's failure. Just like George W. had to avenge his father in Iraq, Xerxes decides he's got to go back to Greece. And this is the part of the story you guys probably all know the best. In, in 479 BC, this massive, massive Persian force, even bigger than Darius had at Marathon, lands at Thermopylae. And from there, they're going to march in, inland um, to the rest of the Greek peninsula. Now, this is Thermopylae today. Uh, at the time of the battle, the ocean was probably right where that road was. The, the ocean is just, just beyond that road now. Uh, and basically, they land on one side, and there's a pass that goes through this, about this wide, and they're going to march their entire army. And as everybody knows, knows what happened after that? So this is where you get the 300. This is all the 300 Spartans thing. So a force of, of, of Greeks, not just 300 Spartans, but several thousand Greece, Greeks, led by 300 Spartans, among others, takes the pass at Thermopylae and holds it against this massive Persian force for three days. So the 300 Spartans and their allies lasted about three days. Whether or not it actually did any good is debatable, but the theory goes that, that it held off the, the, the Persian threat long enough that the rest of the, um, the, rest of the Greek uh, city-states could unify uh, and meet the, th the Persian threat. The Athenian general, or admiral, at the time, this guy named Themistocles. Themistocles, at the time of the uh, Thermopylae battle, gets together all the Persian ships. And they go out into the, into the uh, ocean off, off the coast of, of uh, sorry, all, all the Athenian ships. And goes out, out on the coast, out, on the coast out, out, outside of Athens, and waits for the Persians there, at a place called Salamis. Defeats the Persians at Salamis, sinks Xerxes' army at sea. They don't even get a chance to land again. And it effectively ends the Persian threat for another 100 years or, or so. Thermosocles says, well, this is great. This is how Athens should win. He should win with a navy. Spartans, they're great. They're, they're amazing at, at fighting. 300 Spartans holding off a Persian army, fantastic. We couldn't, we couldn't hope to, to match the Spartans' ability at land warfare. But we have a navy. So we're going to guard our navy. He proposed a set of walls that's going to connect the port of Athens, which is called Piraeus, with Athens itself. And so there's a whole set of, of so there's a set, that's what the walls look like today. So there's a wall that goes between the port and the city. That way, if they're, if they're besieged, they will still have access to their port and their navy, and they can resupply. So once the Persian threat is defeated, uh, Athens kind of takes over, and they're kind of in charge. Um, there's this thing called the Athenian League, which goes on for um, a few dozen years. Things start falling apart between Sparta and Athens. Without having that external threat to unify these city-states, they start to squabble among themselves. Finally, 
war breaks out between Persia, between, sorry, between um, Sparta and Athens, and that's the Peloponnesian War. At the time of the Peloponnesian War, the main person in Athens is Pericles. Pericles. Pericles dominated Athenian politics for like 30 years. He was the great statesman. Uh, he was the Obama of, of, of the classical world. I mean, you, you see lots and lots of references throughout Greek literature. And he realized that there is, agreed with Hermosceles, that, that they're no match for the Spartan army on land. And what they're going to do is they're going to reach their walled city and they're going to defend themselves from there. So, as the Spartan army approaches, he calls all the farmers, he calls everyone out in the fields to come in within the walls, protected, and they're going to resupply themselves by, by sea. And their plan is to, uh, to fight a war of attrition, basically wind Sparta down, um, do amphibious raids, uh, and therefore um, just, just wait them out. He was an amazing speaker, an amazing leader. Uh, this is a painting of his funeral oration. Uh, special funeral for a lot of soldiers. He gave a speech, and this is this speech is documented all over the place. You can see a lot, and it's one of the classical uh, descriptions of of, uh, of of the golden age of Athens. And this is a time of democracy. This is a time of um, Hippocrates, and we'll get to some of the other developments at the time um, when you're seeing uh, theater start to flourish. This is some of the here's some excerpts from this funeral oration. Our form of government does not enter into rivalry with institutions of others. Our government does not copy our neighbors, but is an example to them. It is true that we are called a democracy, for the administration is in the hands of many and not the few. While there exists equal justice to all and alike in their disputes, the claim of excellence is also recognized. Citizen in any way distinguished, he is preferred to the public service as a matter of privilege word of merit. Neither poverty is an obstacle, but a man may benefit his country whatever the obscurity of his condition. These are very pretty modern ideals that we want to hear today. And this is, again, this is 430 BC. We have not forgotten to provide for our weary spirits many relaxations from toil. We have regular games and sacrifices throughout the year. Our homes are beautiful and elegant. The delight which we daily feel in all these things helps to banish sorrow. Because of the greatness of our city, the fruits of the whole earth flow in upon us. So we enjoy the goods of our countries as freely as our own. Our military training in many respects is superior to that of our adversaries. Our city is thrown open to the world. We never expel a foreigner and prevent him from seeing or learning of anything of which uh, the secret, if revealed to an enemy, might profit him. We rely not on management or training but upon our own hearts and hands. In the matter of education, whereas they, from early earth, they being the Sparta, from early youth are always undergoing laborious exercises to make them brave, we live at ease, and yet are equally ready to face the perils. So about a year into the war, in the summer of 430 BC, plague breaks out in Athens. At this point, their entire population is now pulled back within the wall, so you've got a significant increase in the number of people living there, and they've requested the farmers come in, so they brought in their livestock as well, so you've got animals living in the city as well. We know a lot about the 
plague from the writings of this historian uh, Thucydides. And he has made a remarkable uh, uh, history of the Peloponnesian War, including a, a very detailed description of the plague and the symptoms. Um, these descriptions suggest a significant powers of observation um, by this guy. In personal experience, he actually did suffer from the plague at one point, so he knows, knows what people go through. He seemed to understand the, the, the contemporary medical thinking of the time. So he wasn't a doctor, but he certainly was using some of those terms that were being proposed by Hippocrates at the same period of time. Let's look at his description of the disease and some of the symptoms and see what, what, what we find. I'm not going to read all of this, but just to, to point out a few items. It began in Ethiopia above Egypt, descended to Egypt, and it comes to the king's land. It first attacked the population at Piraeus. Okay, that's that port city, right? But afterwards, it came to the upper city as well. So, start somewhere south, Ethiopia, Egypt, Africa, cross the Mediterranean. So maybe something, uh, an outbreak that started somewhere else, arrived by sea. Suddenly, healthy men were seized by mighty heats in the head. So a sudden onset. So it sounds like it's, it just hit people really hard. They had redness, inflamed eyes in both the throat and the tongue. Sounds like coryza. Might think of like measles or something like that. Uh, and they have an atypical foul breath. Then the symptoms descend into the chest and produce a severe cough. So I guess we do have a one tie at least with our theme for the month. Um, and it went to the stomach. It caused a vomiting of a bile of every kind. Non-productive retching followed. Okay, we had violent, violent spasms. Person was very hot to the touch, not very hot to the touch, but felt very warm inside. Had reddish, livid, and flowering with small blisters and wounds. Now this is one of the controversies in the description because this is entirely dependent upon the, upon the in, uh, translation. Um, he doesn't actually describe pox or pustules, or we later describe as pox. He never uses those terms. So depending on which translator you think uh, you look at, it either was red splotches or it was having pustules. We weren't we're not sure, but clearly that was a predominant symptom of the of the disease. They were tormented by an unquenchable th thirst. They were throwing themselves into cisterns, and this was later documented in a couple other outbreaks of typhus and of uh, smallpox, where people were so or in, in typhoid were so consumed uh, with the heat that they they threw themselves into water. They died as most did on the seventh or ninth day. So sudden onset, dead within a week. Pretty impressive. If they escape this, if they manage to escape that initial um, period, the disease descend into the bowels, creating an ulceration and an acute diarrhea. It also, for those survivors, can leave a mark on its extremities. It fell in the genitals and the tips of the hands and the feet. And so basically, they got gangrene of the, of, the, of the extremities. They may have lost their eyes. They might become blind from it. And they had a complete loss of memory. So some people were, had neurologic effects. So what disease does this sound like to you? What do you guys think? OK? 
Meningococcus is a good thought. The gangrene, certainly sudden onset, severe illnesses, illness that uh, starts with coryza. Sometimes can be associated with a cough. Not usually you get intestinal symptoms of that. That's a good idea. Well, this is one of the most enduring medical mysteries around. We have looked at this for literally 2,000 years, and no one has been able to figure out what disease he described. We have an incredibly accurate description that managed to, to not fit any disease we're aware of. And so one um, source listed these 27 different causes for people, what different um, authors have proposed as the cause uh, for, uh, for the plague of Athens. We don't know what it was. There was a really good, um, uh, really good review by uh, uh, doc, a doctor named Kuna, looked at what he thought were like the most um, typical, uh, most likely uh, culprits, and tried to, tried to uh, divide up all these different uh, symptoms we just talked about. And break them out into, well, does, does plague fit? Does, does typhoid fit it? Um, does measles? And um, in his opinion, um, typhus you know, fit pretty well. Measles fit very well. Um, maybe smallpox. The other ones didn't fight, fit quite as well. But there were some features that were there and some features that weren't. Is it possible that a disease 2,500 years ago is different than the smallpox or the typhoid or the, or the typhus we know today? Yeah, it's pretty likely. I mean, stuff, we know that, that, that diseases change, that diseases evolve. SARS, for example, we didn't even know SARS existed. And all of a sudden it shows up for a couple of years and then just goes away. Um, so it, it, it could be a, a disease we're not aware of, or it could be just a, a variation on one of these diseases that's much more common. And all these papers, all these times that, um, that these uh, different uh, authors have, have gone through Thetis's description and tried to carefully separate out, all the papers end with the same paragraph, which is, well, we'd like to know, but it was 2,500 years ago, there's no way we'll ever have a culture. There's no way we'll ever have any pathologic evidence of this, um, uh, of this case because we don't have any, any bodies from. We don't have any. We can't do a, a path. We don't. Hate, we can't do a DNA analysis. We'll never know what it actually was. This is the island of Kos. Anyone heard of the island of Kos? Okay. It's the home of uh, Hippocrates, who was a contemporary at this time, and it was clear that. A couple of his texts, uh, specifically epidemics and prognostics, certainly uh, influenced the terms that um, Thucydides was was using in his in his history. At the Parthenon in uh, in Athens, on one side of it, actually near to where the Olympic Stadium um, and, and being built, is the Theater of Dionysus, and that's that's where some of the, the premier plays were, were to be were to be honored. About the time of the play, or soon after the plague. They, they add uh, a shrine, add an additional shrine onto the, the number of shrines that are on the Parthenon, um, at, right at the top of that theater, to Asepolis. Asepolis. Who's Asepolis? Senator Apollo, yes. Who's Asepolis? He's considered to be the first physician. Now, he's a mythologic figure. Hippocrates is a real person. Hippocrates is a real person. Uh, historical figure, there's writings, we know what Hippocrates wrote. 
the whole oath thing that we're going to talk about in a second. Um, Asclepius is kind of the mythologic first doctor, and he was he was the son of Apollo. Apollo is the, uh, the god of light, god of sunshine, god of healing. And Apollo was considered to be the healer. So his son, he sent his son off to study under Chiron, or Chiron. Chiron is the centaur who tutored uh, Achilles, among other things in literature. So he was kind of the great, he was, if, you, if you were like, if you were the best and brightest of the Greek uh, gods, you, you got to have your, your son or daughter raised by, by the centaur Chiron. And this was the ultimate tutor. Curin raises Cephalus. So Cephalus becomes an amazing physician. Uh, cures diseases right and left. Cures the sick. People come in and they're, you know, uh, bedbound, and he puts your hands on them, and he gets they get up and walk away. Um, he had some daughter. He had some uh, sons and daughters. One of his daughters was named Hygieia. From what we get, before we get uh, Hygieia. Another daughter was named Panacea. And um, he was so effective at being uh, at, at, at curing people, he was messing up the fates. The fates who, who, who spin the, the threads of fate and determine uh, when someone uh, lives and dies by cutting the threads of fate, they were getting all mixed up. Their threads were getting, getting torn up, and the fates went to, to Zeus to use them because they were, they, were, they were messing things up. Hades, who takes all the souls, um, uh, was getting really upset because he was denying him souls. Um, so Zeus eventually struck him down with a thunderbolt. Now look at his staff. Look at Asclepius' staff. Okay. This is the staff of Asclepius. Okay. It's a walking stick with maybe a snake wrapped around it. Okay. You guys, what is this one? That's a caduceus. Okay. So who carries the caduceus? Hermes, the messenger of the god. And what's Hermes' job? to ferry the souls into the afterlife, guide people's dead souls from this world into the underworld. And that is the symbol that we have adopted for medicine, the symbol of the guy who helps the dead get to where they're going, not the symbol of the great physician. A little strange. Don't know why. This is the original, supposedly, uh, Hippocratic Oath. Everyone who graduated from medical school will take an oath. Um, that is now the modern interpretation. You'll see that written in the, in the program, modern interpretation of the Hippocratic of the Oath, and there's different versions of it. Um, I, never, I did not sw swear by Apollo. Um, I, I can't remember who I swore by, but, but, um, but my dad swore by Apollo, so I guess that's, I guess that's cool. So, did you swear by Apollo, or did you, did you ever? Uh, I think it's holy. Oh, it's holy. So, but Apollo, and Asclepius and Hygieia, and Pansia, so there, there's some of the names, yeah. Well, our story's not over yet. In 1996, the 100th anniversary of the Olympic Games was awarded to Atlanta, which really pissed off the Greeks, but anyway. But they said, well, don't worry, we're going we're to get you the, the games pretty soon, and ended up being the 2004 games were held in Athens again. And uh, in anticipation for this, they, the, the Greeks really ramped up their um, infrastructure and public building projects, and they started building more of the subways. And this is um, one of the subways that they were building. And when they were doing that, at a place called Keramikos, they discovered this. And this is a mass grave. And what's interesting about this mass grave, well, first of all, there's not a lot of mass graves in ancient Greece. They just don't really do that very often. 
what was interesting was the bodies at the bottom of the mass grave were all laid out, and they had their little funeral pottery, pottery and their little sacrifices. But the sacrifices were pretty lame. I mean, when it comes to what they were going to usually leave the dead with. Um, and then there were more bodies on top of that. And they kind of just skipped the whole funeral pottery stuff. And there were more bodies on top of that, and they just kind of were like, you know, different. They weren't lying in neat order anymore. And the bodies that were the very top, the newest, put in the, in the mass grave, were just dumped. And they were just allowed to, lie, to, to land any way they wanted to. And they did pottery from this. And the, and the date for the find is 430 BC. And so we can see a couple things. We can see, finally actually have some, some bodies that actually were, were dying from, that died from the plague. And that you can get this sense of the panic that was occurring in the city. The funeral rites, which were very important. I mean, there was the whole funeral oration I just talked about with Pericles. The sacrifices that go with each of the body, and by the time it go, th things go along, and the whole city is ravaged by the plague, with the Spartans beating at, the, at their door, people are just dumping their bodies into it, and the, and the city descends into chaos. So this is exciting. So we actually have a body now from a plague victim, from the time of the plague. So we can test it for DNA. And in 2004, um, some Greek researchers took some teeth from there. They extracted dental pulp from the, from the teeth um, and checked that DNA against some other common diseases. They, uh, they used it against some of the uh, suspected um, causes of the plague. They tested against bubonic plague, um, uh, Sinia pestis. Tested against typhus, which we talked about, which was likely a possibility. They tested against anthrax, tuberculosis, Catch-catch fever, don't know why, typhoid, and cowpox. Why cowpox? Why not smallpox? Why cowpox? You can't get the smallpox. Well, somebody out there can. Apparently, yeah. Supposedly two people, two, two labs have it. We now know there's probably more than that. Um, but basically, they didn't have access to the smallpox um, strands. So what do you think they found? No, they found something. They got a match. They actually got a match. Typhoid. What? Typhoid? And like so many things in this whole story, like every time someone does analysis, uh, every time someone does a paper on this, every time someone you know, finds some clue about the plague of Athens, I'm sort of left disappointed because this doesn't make any sense. So typhoid fever. What does typhoid fever do? Have you seen patients with typhoid? We would see it probably a couple, maybe once a month, maybe a couple times a year in LA. Um, and it's uh, really characteristic is its insidious onset. It's like you ask them when they start getting sick, and it's a couple of weeks ago, and they're not really sure when. It's not a sudden onset of disease. And the predominant symptom is headache, headache and fever. Not, not really necessarily uh, diarrhea. As the, the, the fever, as the symptoms go along, and you get this progressive salmonella typhi bacteremia, people get septic, um, people get hypotensive, uh, people can get, get gangrene. Um, they get ulceration of their intestines, the same term that Thyssis used. And it occurs, if you get perforation, it tends to occur at the Peyer's patches. What are Peyer's patches? So that's question no tissue in the walls of the, of the intestines. And this is, what, this is a 
this is a piece of small intestine that's been cut open, and these are these, these ulcerations at the site of the, of the, of the infections. Um, you can get neurologic symptoms from this, so it's certainly unusual. Um, I had never heard of pneumonia associated with salmonella typhoid. Apparently, it can happen in kids. Um, if you do actually ever suspect the disease or you're thinking about it, one thing to look for is a pulse fever dissociation. This is also a clue that, to think about um, typhoid fever. What that means is you have someone who has a high fever, like 39 degrees, and you look at their, temp their pulse, and their pulse is only 80 or 90. So normally, when you have um, a, a, a very high fever, you're going to have a tachycardia response. And for some reason, with, with typhoid and with some other diseases, um, you get this association. It's kind of characteristic when you see it. So left untreated, before the days of antibiotics, um, typhoid fever is about 15%. The mortality is about 15%. And in fact, in a, um, there was an outbreak among, uh, in Fiji um, where they were able to observe, like, you know, basically untreated and uh, starving population that, uh, that had that, about that mortality rate. So going back to Kuna's um, diagram, and you think about the, the characteristics for typhoid fever, he, he gave it like two <laughs> dots. Maybe there's, maybe there's more of them if we try, try to give the, the disease the benefit of the doubt. But it just doesn't fit. So I don't know what, what, the, what the, I still don't know um, what the cause of the plague was. Um, I, like, I wish that the, the answer, we had the final answer. Um, now one thing to note about that analysis was they tested against cowpox. They didn't test against smallpox. And smallpox, smallpox does fit a number of the features. And when you hear the description of the, the rash that they get, um, you basically think of I think you think measles and you think, and you think of smallpox. And the hemorrhaging and the gangrene, that can certainly all happen uh, in that disease. So what happened to the plague? Well, for one thing, in about a year into the plague, Pericles died. So Pericles, the great statesman, um, he, he, gets, he suffers the plague and he dies. Without Pericles, without having this, the, their, their great leader, the uh, Athenians are having some trouble. Um, for one thing, uh, Sparta actually offers peace about five, six years into the war and says no. Pericles would have taken that one in a heartbeat. He knew they, they couldn't match Sparta on land and he was trying to go for a war attrition. He was trying to get to the point where they get some sort of treaty. He would have taken that, that treaty. Then there was this whole Sicilian expedition thing, which basically was a bunch of hotheads in, the, in, the, uh, in Athens said, well, we've got this great navy. Let's use it. Instead of just resupplying the, the, the city, let's, let's go invade somebody else. So yeah, we're at war with Sparta. That's okay. We can just go open up another front somewhere else. They go off and they go, they go fight um, Syracuse, the city of Syracuse on Sicily, and they get their butts kicked. And that reduces their, their navy down. Now, between the, the war and especially the, the plague, um, about 25% of the population um, gets eliminated. 25% of their soldiers get eliminated. So they give you an idea of the mortality, too. The mortality rate for this disease was probably not 25%. It was probably higher. You have to assume that not every single person was exposed. But probably a lot of them were exposed. Sparta eventually is victorious in 400 uh, BC. It really ended the golden age of Athens, the golden age of democracy, the golden age of theater. Um, it devastated the norms and values of Athens' golden age, their whole um, existence. They, just, as you saw with, the, with, that, with, that, with that mass burial, 
this sense of chaos that develops within the city, people start living for the moment instead of these loftier ideals um, that Pericles was describing in his, in his funeral oration. And effectively did that first democracy in the ancient world. And democracy doesn't show up again uh, in, in major uh, uh, national um, effects probably until the Enlightenment. So, what's the, so what was the effect of the plague on history? Clearly, because of the plague, lost the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. Sparta takes over. They tried to rule the Peloponnesian Peninsula. They don't do a very good job either. Um, and uh, the city-states break up into individual pieces again. Athens is broken. Athens is, is defeated. Athens accepts help and money from Persia to rebuild. So Persia now has a good reason to have political influence in the area. Now, later on, Philip of Macedonia unites the, unites the city-states of Greece again, and his son Alexander takes off roaring across Persia, conquering Persia, and for his lifetime um, has the great uh, Macedonian Empire, conquering as far as, 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 as India. Um, so had the plague not occurred, uh, could Athens have won, maybe not won the, the war, but they certainly would have taken the peace um, with the war not lasted quite as long. What the effect it had, it certainly would have kept Persia out of uh, Greek politics uh, during this period of time, because, because basically Athens being defeated, the opportunity for Persia to get involved again. Now, would Philip Macedonia come along? Sure. Would Alexander have come along and, and led his um, great war? Yes, certainly, because uh, uh, regardless of, of what happened. But whether or not he actually would attack Persia, that's not so, so clear, because it would have been not, not, they would not have been such a significant rival at the time. So maybe um, he and his great ambition would have turned more westward toward Italy. And instead of a Roman Empire, maybe they've had a Macedonian Empire. So you know a lot of this story already. You've certainly he uh, heard of Marathon. For those of you who, who run marathons, you know why you run as far as you do. Um, by the way, when they had the, the marathon in 2004, in Athens. Now, of course, the official distance was this 26.22, not the 26 miles that they had originally had laid out. So they needed to add some distance onto the, to the route. But they wanted to take the original route of the 1896 marathon. So what they did is, there's a little uh, tomb, a little monument to the warriors of marathon, and they had the, all the, the runners just kind of take this little side step and just run around the, the tube, tomb on the, on the way, way down. So they add on that, that extra distance. Um, we talked about Skepolis. Um, has an impact on you today. Certainly, anyone who's gone to the University of Iowa, you guys participate in the frolics. It's called the Skepolian frolics. That's who that refers to. Uh, Sharon is the great uh, tutor. Um, he, that archetype shows up again throughout literature, most recently in Harry Potter. The centaur Frienze is the, it becomes the uh, divinations teacher and is a friend to, friend to, to Harry Potter. The Hippocratic method, the idea of, of observation, and that, that's what influenced and uh, formed the city's uh, descriptions. So whether or not you believe this, if you believe this uh, uh, DNA analysis and you believe it's typhoid and you're happy with that and you can rest with that, then you can say this medical mystery is finally solved after 2,500 years. I'm not satisfied with it, and I think that this mystery lives on further. Thank you. <laughs>